Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. Uh, this is episode 13. My name's Daniel Randall. I'm joined by my usual co-hosts Ellie Clark and Ed Mustill with our producer Liam McNulty behind the desk. We think we've got a really interesting and quite vital and current episode prepared for you today, although saying something like that right at the top of the show is can only be a recipe for anti-climax. <laughs> um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it out. Manage expectations, Daniel. Well, I have. Uh, <laughs> and we'll see if they're met. Um, and to introduce uh, the topic of this month's show, I'm going to pass over to Ellie. So today's episode is going to focus on the police, or more specifically, the Labour movement's relationship to the police. We're going to talk about a few different strikes, but mostly we're going to focus on what is probably the most famous modern example of police brutality against the UK Labour movement, which is the 1984 miners' strike. The reason we've decided to look at this topic today is because, once again, law and policing are becoming hot topics on the Labour left. Although we never intended this podcast to be party political, I don't think anybody in this room would disagree with me when we say that the Labour Party is the political representation of the organised Labour movement, which is one of the reasons why we find the current party of law and order narrative that's going on pretty hard to swallow. Labour are vocally calling for 20,000 more police officers on the street and the left is overwhelmingly going along with peddling a fluffy and sentimental mythology of what having more bobbies on the beat actually means. But is this wise? Well, as we're going to discuss today, history has shown time and again exactly what role the police will play in crushing any sort of working class struggle that reaches a high pitch. So at the very least, we believe our, we believe our representatives in Parliament and the wider movement should think twice before uncritically calling for higher police numbers. Uh, thanks for that uh, intro, Ellie. Most of our um, show today is going to be centred around an interview that Ed recently did with some activists from the Orgrieve Truth and Justice campaign, um, one of whom was a striking miner um, who was involved in the Battle of Orgrieve. So just before we segue into that, Ed, do you want to, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about um, what the Battle of Orgrieve was, uh, what the Orgrieve Truth and Justice campaign is, uh, who the comrades you spoke to were, and, and why this is an important uh, episode to look at. Yeah, so um, the, the Battle of Orgrieve, as, as it came to be known, uh, was a mass picket about uh, three months into the miners' strike uh, outside a coking depot, a kind of strategically important workplace in the coal industry. Um, and it was the scene of uh, a, a police riot, basically, against striking miners. The, the details were, were gone into in, in the interview, so I, I won't repeat them here. So I'm talking to uh, Kevin Horn, who was a striking miner who was arrested at Orgreave, and along with dozens of other miners, um, had the charges against him dropped in a very high-profile uh, case uh, a few years later. Uh, and Barbara Jackson, who founded the Orgreave Tr Truth and Justice campaign, um, the goal of the campaign is uh, for an independent inquiry into the events of, of Orgreave. Um, and it's, as, as Barbara mentions in the interview, uh, heavily inspired by the success of the Hillsborough families um, in uh, another ignoble um, episode in the history of South Yorkshire Police um, that happened several years afterwards. Uh, so, as I say, I'll let the interview uh, speak for itself and then afterwards we'll just pick up on uh, some of the issues that, that are raised. So, Barbara, first of all, do you want to just explain about the Orgreave Truth and Justice campaign, uh, where it came from and what it's trying to do? Mm. 
Well, it started five and a half years ago here in Sheffield in November 2012. And it was really after the Hillsborough families had had the result of their panel hearing, which was, oh, we believe your version of events, you know, and we found all this documentation. Um, so, um, because I was on strike for the year in the white collar section of the NUM, you know, uh, obviously loads and loads of things about the strike have bugged me for years and years and stayed with me. Uh, but, you know, after the strike was over, there was never an opportunity or a window to do anything about it. And I just suddenly thought, there's a window of opportunity now to build on, you know, the exposure and the publicity that the Hillsborough panel hearings getting. And people were going around saying, oh, grave should be next. And I was thinking, yeah, it should be, but who's gonna, like, make the first move? And after a couple of weeks, I just thought, nobody's making a move. So I just booked a room at the workstation and sent around an email to everybody on my email list who I thought would be interested. And 10 people, including myself and Leslie in the famous photograph, turned up for that meeting. And um, really a campaign that started from such uncertainty <laughs> and such fragility of having no money, no resources, you know. No, no name. No name, no traction, no aim, should have, you know, just died a death within two or three months, but it really, really just took off. So did you find it quite quickly um, uh, sort of snowballed in the, in the ex-mining areas? Because, I mean, I remember going up with you uh, to the Durham Miners Gala mm. in, at the camp, I think the campaign was quite young at that mm. point. And there was obviously people there coming mm. up to the store mm. who'd been at Orgreave, who mm. literally felt like they hadn't spoken about it for years and mm. years. And it mm. was all kind of... So was it a bit like that? Was it a bit like people kind of waking up to it and kind of mm. remembering it? Or do you think it's kind of always been there for people? And, and, it, think, and it was just a bit of a nudge yeah, for people to do something about yeah. it? I think it's always been there for people who were involved in whatever level in the strike, whether you were on strike or supporting it or what. But, you know, the, all the bad vibes and the bad media from the strike meant that people kept their heads down in the aftermath. And uh, it hasn't been easy to break into the pit villages at all. Well, we've not found it easy. Even though as a campaign we've met at Doncaster, Rotherham, Barnsley, Sheffield and Chesterfield trying to entice people in, haven't we? And uh, we've largely been unsuccessful in doing that. Um, uh, the Rotherham advertiser's been very good and that brought Kevin in with uh, a few other uh, blokes at the time. And uh, But once people see you at a store or doing something, then people wanted to come and tell you their story. story. Yeah, really, really couldn't, at last somebody's doing something about it and really just wanting to get their story out can there. I, can I just say that in the pit villages now, uh, the middle class have moved in and the miners have moved out. Right. So, so the middle, uh, so the the mining villages now don't belong to the miners, mm. um, 
and that it's desirable housing mm-hmm. because yeah. you've got you've got a pit and a village and they're stuck out in the country. Mm. Yeah. So so um, the richer people have have actually moved in, and and the miners have moved to <laughs> old folks homes and uh, and and bungalows and stuff. So there's been a kind of gentrification of yeah. those communities yeah. And, yeah. and the memories kind of weakened over the over mm. the years. Yeah. And also a lot of a lot of miners have died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. an awful lot. What are the politically? What are the aims of the campaign? What what is it trying to achieve? What would a victory look like for the Orgreave campaign? Well, the the aim uh, has always been a full public inquiry, but you know, when Amber Rudd turned us down at the end of October two thousand and sixteen, uh, that avenue looked increasingly closed off to us but you know we had a boost last year when um, it was in the Labour Party manifesto you know just a couple of sentences about we'll launch and did they say an investigation or a full public inquiry we'll look into an inquiry yeah yeah so that has been very positive and very tangible for us all to hold on to um the, the longer you, your quest for justice goes on, in all honesty, the more unlikely it becomes that you're going to get a, a, a pure form of justice, if I can put it like that. And we've increasingly, I think, had, haven't we, conversations, uh, especially with Gareth Pierce about, uh, you know, our solicitor, about getting the true version of events out in the public domain because it's still very much dominated by Margaret Thatcher's government's version of what happened in 84, 85. And um, to get a true version out, and even, um, and I'm speaking only personally at the moment, even an apology uh, via parliament, uh, and uh, maybe a panel type hearing like the Hillsborough families had, would feel that uh, we'd achieve something. Yeah. No, no compensation involved. We're not asking for no. compensation no. in monetary terms. Mm. We just want, we just want the truth to come out and an apology, and we, we don't want it uh, behind closed doors. In quite, uh, we, we want, we want it in the public domain so that um, people can actually hear what happened, mm. because. Even me, in, in just after the strike, uh, I used to go in the pub and tell them what, what, what happened at Orgreave and what happened at wherever I went picketing, you know, smashed windscreens, uh, arrested drivers, all that. Um, and, and the only half believed me. Yeah. To, a, to a point where uh, I used to walk in the pub and everybody used to scatter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you understand what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Fed up of hearing about it, and uh, and so I'd I'd love to be able to uh, say, now do you believe? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So going back to the events of the time, obviously, Allgreave, that the Battle of Allgreave is, is probably the most well-known instance of sort of police violence during the strike, but um, just. Generally, in the in the, it didn't sort of come out of nowhere, did it? There was like a context to it. So, mm. was, was the strike right from the start? Was it policed very heavily, and was it was it clear that the police were going to play 
a particular role in, in trying to prevent the strike from being successful? Well, in the, in the first couple of months, um, we were picketing in Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire, well, all over the place, and people were actually joining the strike. Um, and and joining in so uh, in such numbers that that um, the government in the wisdom sent in more police and more police or or whoever sent them in, and we couldn't get within two miles of of, of any targeted pit. Um, and if you if you parked your cars up two miles away and walked like we often did through the woods anyway. Mm. Um, when we came back, the tyres had been let mm. down or, uh, and the, the windscreen smashed. Mm. Uh, so you were stuck there in the middle of Nottinghamshire uh, with no transport home and obviously no money because we had no money. Yeah. We were on strike. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and, and, and that's how it built up and built up. Uh, and Orgreave, we used to call back at Orgreave when we couldn't get through. We, we, we used to call back at Orgreave and that's how Orgreave steadily built up. Like mm. Um, mm. they had a, they had a, the the unions, the railway unions, and and the NUM, and the steel unions mm. had a, had a pact mm. to Tri say triple alliance. Yeah, I think it was like the triple alliance yeah. to say that um, um, <clears throat> there would be so much coal allowed into Orgreave to keep the ovens going, mm. Mm. Uh, and and. And so much coke comes out, goes to um, uh, to, to the steelworks at um, Scunthorpe, Scunthorpe mm. to keep their ovens going mm. as well. You see, mm. to so keep that, the so that, that was that would meant that people wouldn't people in other industries wouldn't lose their jobs mm. as a result. That's of right, and and, yeah. and not only that, you see, it, uh, blast furnaces and things have to be kept going, mm. and uh, and and coke ovens especially. If you don't empty the coke ovens, keep them going. All the insides fall out, and they have mm. to be all rebuilt. Right. Mm. So, so we realised that. Uh, but what happened was, then, then um, the steelworks wanted to be on full production. Then, um, and and they reneged on the uh, on the agreement. So, um, the railwaymen wouldn't deliver more coal. So they started bringing it in in these lorries. Right. Mm. And, t and taking coke out in lorries, mm. and 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 from small pickets of half a dozen who couldn't get through in Nottinghamshire, started dropping back to Orgreave uh, to to try and stop the uh, stop the wagons and speak to the drivers, and they were allowed to uh, earlier on, mm. and then of course mm. the the police built up and the and the crowds built up, you know the the pickets built up. Until we got to the stage where, where the cavalry came and the, the dogs and. So it was a kind of gradual build yeah, up of the police yeah, presence there. Yeah. And that obviously culminated. Over over a month or or maybe six weeks. Six weeks, I think. Yeah. So um, so can you just talk a bit about your experience of the of of the mass picket and and your own arrest and and the sort of behaviour of the police around that. I'll tell you my story from uh, if we're talking about police. When we were kids, me and we, we lived on a mining estate. Me and my three brothers and my sister, and uh, and we never saw the police because as fathers worked together and they drank together, 
and played dominoes together and uh, and and with the local police as well <laughs> and they used to if you were caught pinching apples or something the falling off trees now I don't, I don't know but <laughs> the bloke would give you a scotch like and what's your name who's your dad and then you'd tell them like and then they'd tell your dad at the pit or in the miners welfare or whatever and then when your dad came home he'd give you another one <laughs> and that's and that's uh, how policing was and, and as we remembered it mm-hmm. even as teenagers um, if you came home and, and you'd forgot your key you used to borrow next door's key they all fitted you know and, and, and we never had any trouble no, no burglars things like that and so from from that to a man in his 30s going on a picket line it, it was a massive eye opener because mm. we just never expected police to act like that mm. Mm. you know mm. um, so it, it was a big shock and um, and and when we were picketing in, in Nottinghamshire and, and Derbyshire and uh, and places like that to see the police acting as they did it were, it were quite refreshing to go to or grieve <laughs> when we could walk about mm. You know, mm-hmm. if, if there were 10 of us, 20 of us, whatever, we just used to walk about. Police walk that way, we walk this way. And it was quite pleasant and, until this build-up uh, when they wouldn't let us talk to the drivers anymore. Uh, and, um, and the pickets just got massive because they couldn't get into Derbyshire, they couldn't get into Lancashire. And so they started congregating there. And, of course, the police forces got got bigger and bigger um, on the day um, we everybody got let let into Orgreave they, they were they were um, escorted from the parkway uh, signs on the M1 sending people Orgreave this way now what happened to the times when they were stopping us going there yeah. you know so so that were that was strange anyway on this day and then uh, we parked in a, an estate. We thought, we'll park up here and then we can walk. So we walked down, and, and, and as we were walking down, we could see the police, five or 6,000 police just marching in the field, not even on the front line, not even at the top end or the bottom end, uh, just marching, you know, doing the... And so we... we, we Obviously, thought that they were army people, and uh, and when, uh, of course, when we did get to the front line, we noticed all all the police without numbers. It was a red up day, and they got these big raincoats on, great coats with uh, covering the uniforms, covering the numbers and that. Uh, and it, it honestly was red out that day. And then I got arrested at the bottom end, early doors, but I'm listening people's story as they're coming in to Sheffield Police Station uh, what was happening at the top end you know, the horses charging all that and and, and people bleeding and, uh, and with broken legs and, and broken skulls and things and, and then when we were transferred to Rotherham Police Station we could see in the cells all the blood and, and urine and, and snot and whatever you know, so we knew we knew people. Uh, me and this other lad who were sharing a cell. We knew people had been hurt on that day. Mm-hmm. 
And then when we got to Rotherham, they put us in a quadrangle. Then, then you saw it all. God, you know, friends of ours with split heads and broken legs and uh, broken arms, broken wrists and, and injuries to the head. Loads and loads of injuries to the head and blood all over this, this compound. Obviously, uh, we were taken into court in the middle of the night uh, and given silly bail conditions. Um, not questioned, not even questioned, just taken to court, charged with, with right and unlawful assembly, without question. They didn't even tell you what the, you, you're supposed to have done. Um, just en bloc. And the worst injuries, they kept them back until the next day in the cells. So that um, the public, the photographers and the newspapers and that, wouldn't see that. Mm. Wouldn't see them mm. coming to court. Mm. So the sort of bail conditions, presumably, they were that you weren't allowed to go into, into the mining areas or near near the pits or near, near, the, near the railway, plants. near the steelworks, mm. near the power stations, yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, NCB properties, except for your own place of work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, so in your in your opinion, that kind of Incident on that particular day, do you, was it a kind of spontaneous police riot or was it a kind of premeditated situation that they'd kind of it, deliberately had a hand in it, it, kind of forming? What happened? What happened was when the when the wagons came in, there was a bit pu- pushing and shoving as every day. Every day we like that bit of pu- pushing and shoving. And what they used to do, they used to link arms of police and shove you one way, and you, f- you used to fall down a ditch into a cornfield. Then go around and come back and have another push. And that, that, it just happened like that. We knew we'd never break through. If we broke through, we wouldn't know what to do. Mm. Um, but uh, that it, it, it was like it, it was like that. And then, uh, but but after the first push, people went off then to eat the sandwiches. Or I mean, there were people from Scotland, South Wales, mm-hmm. uh, Kent. People mm. from Kent couldn't get through Dartford Tunnel. Mm. For they months. could get to Orgreave. But they could get to Orgreave on that day. Right. You know, the, the, the lads in South Wales couldn't get out of South Wales. Mm. The Scottish lads couldn't get down. The, the, the Geordie lads, uh, but the, they were all there on that day. And they all went up to Asda, was it? Mm, it was Asda. Asda. And got a sandwich and, and, a, and an ice cream. I don't know if you've seen the ice cream man mm. photograph. <laughs> But, but they went and, uh, and got ice creams, and while the, this lull was on, and there were only like 50 people on the field, that's when the horses came. I don't know if they were trying to shove everybody above the bridge or what, but people didn't have a chance, because they had to run down the, down the embankments onto the live uh, railway line, mm. because the, the bridge were only as wide as this. So after, after that day, was... Did that mark a, a way a sort of change in the way the rest of the strike was policed? Yeah. Did it, was it much worse after that? that just generally after that day, it it, it seemed, seemed to give them permission to do what to do it to do whatever. Mm-hmm. And what they did then, they um, occupied the villages mm-hmm. and estates. Mm-hmm. They just occupied them, so you couldn't go to the pub mm-hmm. without somebody taking this like. Uh, uh, your wife didn't go to the shop. Because otherwise, uh, you know, they'll talk dirty about your wife or whatever. Mm. Uh, 
and, and, sh and shouting and, and things like this and arresting people in working men's clubs, going into working men's clubs and arresting people. And, and so that was the worst part because, because Augury had given them permission, in effect, to do this. So it was a kind of just a, a daily in intimidation then yeah. for the rest mm. of this drive, yeah. just, mm. trying to, just trying to kind of demoralise yeah. people. Mm. And, yeah. and I, I'll tell you another story about a lad called Dennis at my... But Dennis went picketing every day. And what we used to do, um, while, while I was picketing at, at Barnborough, at my own pit, we used to go to a telephone box and say, how much will he give, of, give us today if we start work today? And then leave the phone off the hook, <laughs> you know, just to just to annoy him. Yeah. And and Dennis did the same, and he and he told him his name. Oh dear! He told him his name. So the next morning, they went to Dennis's flat, kicked the door down, and took Dennis to the pit and sat him in the canteen, crying. But he was a scab, and he had to leave the area because people said he was a scab. Now this is this is the kind of thing police did. Mm. To to this about Dennis's life. Mm. Yeah. And and many, many more. Mm. Many more. Way beyond what, you know, um normal policing's about, you know, that incident that Kevin's just that is spiteful and malicious, isn't it? And that's just to start yeah. the ball rolling to say yeah. there's somebody working at that pit. Yeah. yeah. And then you see then you'll get an odd one thinking, Oh, if he if he's working out work yeah, or whatever, yeah, yeah. and he, and that's all it were about. Dennis never went in again. Mm -hmm. So it, so it's it's obvious from all this, and not and not just from the big set piece battles, but from the sort of daily sort of grinding, mm. kind of intimidatory stuff as well. That in this dispute, the police are on the side of the bosses in the dispute. They're not playing a kind oh, of yeah. neutral role no, to no, prevent no, they're violence not, yeah. or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. No, they might not. talk a talk at the top of the police that that's what they were about. You know, just facilitating letting the picket speak to the lorry drivers and facilitating those who want to go to work to let them. But on the ground, the actual reality, that was anything went wasn't mm. it and, was that, and, always that enormous difference and what they it? used to do is they used to get uh, they used to get people from Nottinghamshire and, and, and that to come and work five or six of them mm. and they used to pay them to come and do a shift at Barnborough Main or, or mm. Manvers Main or whatever mm. uh, they used to do that mm. and, 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 and these working miners they, they, had, they had no conscience mm. Mm. and pre them, they presumably were escorted in them yeah. Mm. Oh, you never saw the faces. Yeah. And and but but this this all came up later that that that's what they were doing. Mm. They were they were they were going into the working men's clubs in in Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire, and and asking half a dozen blokes if they want to earn two or three hundred quid. Mm. One of the things that you get, um, particularly around South Yorkshire, is, is that's that's a kind of kind of sort of truism from the minor strike that people say a lot is that our, our cops here were all right mm. and but when when like the Met came up and when other police forces came up that's when things got very ugly mm. and violent do you, do you think there's a kind of truth in, in that or, the, or was it is what, it the case that well, they were all bad to, to, to I'll, tell, I'll tell you a story that the, 
the horses were Yorkshire horses, mm. every one of them. And the, and the man sat on the white horse, Mr. Clements, were it, or somebody, he was the leader of the cavalry. So it's okay saying Yorkshire uh, police weren't on the picket line, they were on the picket line. I must admit the Met were worse, and the big city police uh, were all always worse, the Manchester police, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Liverpool. And uh, of course they'd been involved earlier in the 80s, they, they would have been involved in policing the, the so-called riots in in cities like Liverpool, yeah, and, and, using uh, some of the same tactics. And also so. Birmingham with the uh, Salt Lee yeah. Gate. So, so yeah, they, they, I think they were more violent, and I think, and, and I think the uh, South Yorkshire Police stood at the back. I don't know for a fact, but I, I, I never saw. I, I knew a few uh, uh, South Yorkshire policemen, and and they always told me that they refused to go on the mm. picket line. Mm. But Do you think that's something that they might just say in well, later I, I, years? I, yeah, I think, it might, yeah. I think it might be, but it'd be nice if it were true, but I don't <laughs> believe yeah. it at all, yeah. because you know very well, all them horses were, were Yorkshire horses. Mm. Yeah. Um, was there any discussion, particularly after, after Orgreave and, and after the sort of ramping up of the police violence, was was there any discussion in the union or on the pickets about kind of self defence or whether look like what what sort of methods did people take to kind of look after themselves or to run away? Yeah, <laughs> run away mostly. Yeah. I'll tell you what I think. I've worked with some. I, I work with some miners and the, and the uh, strong, hairy ass colliers, the big men. And and if all them big men at Orgreave or any other picket wanted to go go through that picket that that line, mm. they would have done. Mm. But they respected the law. Mm. You got a few teenagers and stuff, you know, uh, throwing their weight about. But these men, these colliers, could have gone through that that them police lines and ate the horses and dogs. <laughs> honestly, to. honestly, they mm. were they were big men. Mm. Uh, and if they, if they hadn't respected the law as such, mm. they they, mm. they would have uh, crushed the police. Mm. 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 Kevin's quite right, because even in the midst of all that's just been described, there's still that um, latent respect for the police, that latent, you know, what is normal, what is not normal, still not quite believing what you're seeing. And all of that holds you back. And it was never enough, uh, in my opinion, that Arthur Scargill was there with a megaphone because he could never have commanded the bigger picture, you know. And they were miners, they weren't an army, they weren't trained like armies and police are trained and they go through drills. And they've got a plan before they start. They will have had an operational order for the day, the police. Well, the miners' operational order will just be... Turn up. Turn up, <laughs> do your best. It'll be a verbal, very short, do your best, and uh, try and keep out of trouble, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think I've been told that the Green and Women tried to advise the NUM uh, about non-violent tactics, saying linking arms is really good because you... you 
you're more presenting a barrier then. If you're all just milling around, you're easy to disperse the linking arms. Or if there's horses sitting down or lying down on the ground, because horses are very reluctant to trample on anything mm -hmm. that looks alien to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was a difficult concept for uh, the NUM or, and the miners or whoever to sort of accept that advice from the green and common women mm. that you know it, it's been proved to be quite sound advice it, it doesn't stop it but it holds it back for a while and you know things don't develop quite as quick if you're all linked arms and laid on the ground I think what I think what happened is people were sat on the grass and the police came and hit them over the head uh, Russell Bromad mm. for instance uh, uh, it, you'll have seen this film on the BBC. They cut it. They cut the film there. It's the one in the red T-shirt. The one in the red T-shirt. You can't miss it. But on the ITV, you saw all the lot. The Channel mm. Four, you saw all the lot. And and this and this policeman broke his truncheon on on, mm. on Russell's head, and had to apply for a, a truncheon the next day, saying he'd lost it. You couldn't. You couldn't have sat down, and. Uh, like the like the green and women did, mm. uh, you couldn't have sat down because you, that's what you would have got. Mm. You, you it all depends on your terrain that you're on, your geography. And not only that, turn, you're yeah. looking for yeah. a way out. Mm. When you're in that crowd, you're looking for all the time. Mm. It's like looking for a toilet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Before you go in, you think, right, I'm up there, me. That's mm. that's where I'm going if the horses come. Yeah. It's I remember in the in the student protests in 2010 in Parliament Square and there was when uh, snatch squads started going in and uh, uh, me and a mate of mine were trying to convince people that linking arms mm. and trying to stay where you were would be better for everyone in the mm. <laughs> but obviously people's tendency is that a big cop is coming towards you with a truncheon you're going you're gonna to run in the opposite yeah, direction yeah. aren't you so and then and dogs don't take prisoners yeah that's yeah. that's for sure mm. yeah and by the number of injuries to the back of people's back of, heads that, and shoulders that's what they were running away. and bikes, they were running away. Yeah. And if that isn't a... People recognise that as a demonstration of, I'm getting out of this, so I'm not part of it anymore. But to the police, it was just like, oh, we've got them on the just run, a, yeah, let's just carry a on a bit further. So given, just to kind of finish up, I guess, mm. um, obviously in this country, the minor strike probably is the, well, the 84-85 the strike, I should say, is, is probably the most uh, well-known and longest uh, instance of the police being used to break an industrial dispute in, a, in quite a systematic way. Mm. But it's not the only one. Mm. So you, you obviously you had, like... What going way back to the 1920s and again mm. in the coal fields the, the, the police being used in a certain way in the 1911 yeah. railway strike you had the army and the, mm. and the police being used to move goods that otherwise mm. couldn't get out of yards and stuff mm. like that mm. um, so but obviously 99% of the time in people's everyday life there isn't a big industrial dispute going on mm. so that's not that's not how most people see the police or mm. their role in society. Mm. I mean, do you think, given your experiences of the strike and stuff, do you think it's possible to have a, a police force that, when something like that happens, wouldn't 
behave like that? Or do you think it's sort of intrinsic in the nature of the police in the society can they're I, in? Can I just, uh, can I just say that uh, Bar- Barbara will tell you I have these dreams. <laughs> and my dream is to have policing as, uh, as it was when I was a kid. Because I've got, I've got three sons and they've, and they've all been in trouble with the police because they've lost respect. Now they've got children and they're trying to, because they made mistakes uh, with the police through my arrests and things like that and coming on black and blue, they've got to try and teach their children now to respect the police because it's the only way you can get on in life. They're all we've got. Unfortunately, they're all we've got. If you get burgled, you're going to go to police, aren't you? The police have lost my kids, if you know what I mean. Mm. Now they're grown-ups. But I want my grandkids to have that respect again. Mm. But you think they've lost it through their own actions and what they've done? Yeah, yeah. But the bad orders from the bad orders from elsewhere. to, to have an inquiry for Orgreave would would clear the floor. The, the South Yorkshire Police have got such a bad name now. Mm. Why don't they just say, right, let's have an inquiry about everything. Clear the floor, start fresh with the Bobby on the beat again. Mm. And then my grandchildren and their children um, will start fresh. But do you think that's possible? If, the, if like, if there was, I'm not sure if it is, but I'd, I'd like it to be tried. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because if the, if something happens in the future, on obviously something like the miners' strike is isn't going to happen again in this yeah. country because that industry has gone. Well, but, but, it, but if, it, if, there if, is no big industry left anymore. Yeah. So. yeah. But there are still things like on you know, albeit on a smaller scale, like like the student protests a few years ago, mm. or or that sort of thing, where you do still have um, instances where kind of. Uh, people who are fighting for some sort of social change or some sort of political movement mm. and it seems like again and again they come up against mm. the police so if, even if you have the kind of community policing that exists 99% of the time mm. you're sti- when they're called on do you not think they're still going to do what they do in those, well, in they'll those have cases? Well they'll have a plan you see mm. they train for such situations they'll have a mm. plan and and up for two all gets heard that they they're going to carry out that plan, mm. Mm. even if it means kettling people in, uh, shutting all the streets so people can't get away. Yeah, yeah. Which which they'd like to do, and that's happened many times in London. Mm. There has been serious attempts in the last thirty years to open up the police more, police and criminal evidence uh, act. You know where interviews were recorded and filmed and stuff like that. Uh, our view is that the police should be dealing with criminals and criminality and they shouldn't be interfering in the social and industrial spheres because that's, that is something entirely different. Mm. It doesn't start out to be criminal, but in in some cases people do get forced into criminality, mm. you know, mm. during an industrial dispute. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the Battle of the Beanfield, you know, the New Age travellers, how they had their caravans smashed up and there were women, you know, with young children and it didn't matter uh, because the police seemed to have got this very narrow vision of 
who is normal and who sort of law-abiding citizens yeah. versus yeah, and, and, yeah. undesirable. Yeah. Mm. And we always thought that that the the, the events at Orgreave gave permission then for the Beanfield thing. And I mean, I've been watching the last two episodes. Uh, this is the final one tonight of looking back at the Stephen Lawrence murder, you know, and uh, you can see all sorts of connections and threads in that to, you know, uh, policing now and now they've attempted to change and soften, you know, uh, their image, etc. But they're um, a career-driven organisation, they're a uniformed organisation, they're a disciplined organisation and um, it's quite intimidating, you know, when uh, you get a chief constable on television and they're in the full uniform with the epaulets, the caps and the medals, you know, and you think, well, you get other people who are in quite important positions in our country, like a doctor, and but they've got no obvious uniform. Yeah, and it's about how they use that uniform yeah. uh, to... to um, be more authoritative, authoritative so that you start off a bit quelled by them and you always feel that you're sort of uh, one step behind. But it, it is very difficult for people like us who've been involved in um, a social or an industrial event because you can't tell your, your children the truth about the police because it clashes with everything that they're getting from storybooks, from what they taught at school, from you know, kids' little TV programs when they're little, it, it clashes entirely with how police are presented to them. And so the best that you can say is to them most of the time is the police aren't always right. You need to have a more questioning attitude and a more critical attitude towards, you know, what is being presented to us from on top from governments and police and all these bodies that then have to carry that out mm. you've really got to question why and in whose benefit so that was an interview with barbara jackson and kevin horn from the orgreave truth and justice campaign now obviously there's a lot of different attitudes towards the police policing uh, within the labor movement and where we're coming from we recognize is very much a minority position even in the left of the movement to be as kind of anti-cop as us three generally <laughs> are is, is, is not the sort of common sense sure and, 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 and also to you know not just on the level of how, kind of being hostile to the cops on a sort of social level but having that critique of the police as an institution mm-hmm. and part of the state and the role of the state etc you know that it's you know it really we should acknowledge that, that that view is not widely held yet. And it's interesting listening to the guys from the Orgreave campaign because they, they obviously do have a critique of, of the way that the police were used in, in that dispute, but they also want the state and the police to be in some way accountable, mm. in some way reformed, to mm. be to be better. I think it's worth picking up on the idea of um, kind of... Uh, normal policing yeah. versus the p- policing during the industrial dispute because I guess if you look at like the history of the police sort of as, as a modern force it actually was more about public order than about dealing with individual criminals like mm-hmm. right, right from the beginning and obviously 
a big industrial dispute is deemed as like a big threat to like the smooth running of society mm. and the, so I, I think it's been right through right from the be, beginnings of the modern police force that that was not just a role but one of their primary roles was was like you know the term is like keeping the peace isn't it yeah. that includes keeping industrial Cla- class peace, peace. Yeah, 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 yeah peace between yeah. the classes um i think as well that 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 you're right to pick up on that distinction between you know kind of normal policing and uh, the the policing of a big social upheaval like this and i think i think we we'd kind of want to unpack that a little bit wouldn't we because even the so-called normal policing we would have a critique of that and you know Ellie you were, you were talking kind of off, off air about um the experience of your the kind of way your estate was policed growing yeah. up and you know that, that's that's quote normal unquote community policing mm-hmm. but to me that still shows that the, the police are used in a very sort of um you know they're used in a kind of class way you know the the the, the estates the gated estates of uh, kensington are not being policed like that are they yeah yeah sure and i think it's it's also worth pointing out as well um and this is something that i guess could sound quite conspiratorial but i am determined that it's true that actually your local neighborhood bobby <laughs> where is it going to go lizards lizards <laughs> your um your local neighborhood bobby who is probably a very nice person to most people is put there for a reason in order i think to to make a certain point about community policing but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the role of all community policing so for instance one of the things I was saying to the to the boys is when I was growing up um on various estates both in London and outside of London we had a kind of good cop bad cop thing going on Mm. for a long time so we would have the the sort of the nicer police officers who would who would do nicer things and be more of a kind of public figure but then you would have the out and out assholes, and like as much as you could say that this was partly to just to do with personality types, I also think that there was a level to which it was a tactic. So on one hand, the police can maintain a kind of foothold in the community, but then also on the other hand, they can remind you where your place yeah. inside that community is, and it is underneath yeah. them. If and, that makes sense, it, that has it. That has its kind of coda during industrial dispute, like. Like, if you're, like, on a demo, and there's always this thing, the way things get reported, or a picket line, or whatever, and it's, like, and and it started out peaceful, and then the mood turned yeah. ugly. And in my experience, the mood turns ugly when the police decide that that's what's going to happen. Yeah. And, you, like, you can't, you'd be on demos where, for the first couple of hours, they're all, they're smiling, they're shaking everyone's hand, they're giving all these leaflets. And they're saying, we're here, to, and, yeah, we're here to support you, we're we here to, to facilitate, facilitate your, your, your protest. protest. And then something <laughs> will happen, like, halfway through the afternoon... That like the mood will shift and the the role of keeping the peace, keeping public order mm-hmm. kicks in, and and it's almost like during the eighty four eighty five strike that kind of happened writ large because you have like Kevin was describing, you have this kind of like the first couple of months of the strike, it's all a bit almost a bit matey. You're kind of there's a bit of pushing and shoving, but then the strike is growing and therefore becoming effective, and a decision was made you know that the battle of orgreave the police riot at orgreave it was a deliberate like mm-hmm. decision you know mm-hmm. it, to, to do that on that day like barbara says you know the police have operational plans they have orders they yeah. don't that these things don't happen by accident sort of thing so it's it's worth and that's been the case all 
that we, there's other strikes we can point to both in this country and, and overseas and one, so one of the other things to pick up on and again it goes back to the sort of good cop bad cop thing and the way that the police are deliberately used in certain ways is this thing of like you because you have to have this kind of element of trust in the police to be able to police a community when you want to like crack some heads it's better to bring in some other coppers from 100 mm-hmm. miles away who don't have like friends mm-hmm. and relatives mm-hmm. in that community and that happened in the minor strike it also happened way back in 1911 in liverpool they brought in cops from Birmingham into Liverpool deliberately. When they used soldiers, they didn't use soldiers from the local garrison. They marched regiments like 50 miles crisscrossing mm. the country so that they weren't beating up their brother who works on the railways. Yeah, they were beating yeah. up someone else's brother who works on the railways. I mean, I think that aspect of the, the police organising themselves in a very kind of class-conscious way, if you like, um, in a kind of military way and in a class-conscious way, you, you, there, there are... There are you know, innumerable instances of that th- throughout Labour history, and and if I maybe indulged uh, to to um, you know, I know the deal was after the last episode, I wasn't allowed to talk about Minneapolis again. But if oh, I God. if I if I if I maybe indulged to um, mention a couple of points from the the Teamster strikes that we talked about in our last episode, where there were um, a, you know a, a really key feature of that was the role of the police, the strike organising itself to defend itself against the police, and one of the things that Dobbs talks about in the book is how the Minneapolis Police Department completely reorganised itself to put itself on a kind of class war footing. One of the things it did was issue all of its officers with, like, riot guns um, rather than their sort of... or or additional to their standard issue weapons. And officers that refused to take them because they could sort of see what they were going to be asked to do were suspended. So in moments of um, kind of high pitch like that, the police kind of becomes part of, you know, it's, it is an arm, it's part of the armed wing of capital. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that is what it is for. Um, I, I think the other, another thing I wanted to say is that, you know, we're talking about the minor strike or the, the great unrest in 1911 or, or, or Minneapolis in 1934, these kind of huge upsurges that, that you know, proto-revolutionary almost kind of pose the question of class power. And, and I think it's quite easy to fall into the, the view that, well, you know, until we get to that point, the police don't really have that role and we don't need to worry about them. But, you know, you can, you can see with, like, for example, the passing of, you know, new anti-union laws, you can see how pretty, like, routine trade union organising could be criminalised or, or, or has, has been criminalised, yeah. and, and the police could start to play that role. And even now, I mean, I've been involved in strikes where, not on picket lines that I've been on personally, but in strikes that I've been involved in, where people were were arrested, members of my, you know fellow workers, members of my union were arrested for trying to stop scabs crossing the picket line. That's what you know that sort of thing does happen. Mm-hmm. So it's not a, you know now it, it, it's not a spectacular um, perhaps as Orgreave, but it still shows on that kind of microcosmic level what the role of the police is, for what they're fundamentally there for as an institution, and you know I think as I'm sure everyone in this room would agree and and. I guess as I would like our listeners to consider, it's it's that fundamental function of the police that should really make the labour movement and particularly the left of the labour movement think twice before we go along with the idea that the police are just a sort of another public service and mm-hmm. we want to see more police just like we want to see more nurses. You know, the 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 the, the spectacle um, of the Labour Party under its most left wing leader for a generation producing and distributing leaflets shaped like a police helmet 
advertising the policy that the Labour will, Labour will put 20,000 more cops on the street is not a good state of affairs. And, uh, you know, hopefully a look back at some of this history, both more long range and recent, will feed into that discussion. Yeah, Daniel, I completely agree. And I think one of the things that's probably like most heartbreaking about this this state of affairs and the current kind of, like I said, law and order narrative that Labour are going with at the moment is that there are huge swathes of like black and Asian youth uh, and, and other minority ethnic youth who have been really enthused by the Corbyn campaign. Um, and I think in a lot of cases have thrown themselves into politics for maybe the first time ever in their lives. Um, and we've spoken around this a little bit, but I don't think we've explicitly said it. Their understanding of neighbourhood policing is not the same as the understanding of neighbourhood policing in a village in Kent. It's just not. When you're up to 10 times more likely to be stopped and searched, um, you don't think of the police as like these these fuzzy entities that are your mates. Uh, when you're being pulled over in a car every day, the bobbies on the beat are not what you want to see. So I feel like, um, yeah, Labour's stances, current stance is a real betrayal of, of those activists and those people. But one thing that I know generally about uh, the minor strike, taking it back to the minor strike, um, and some of the things that kind of came up a little bit in the interview, is that during the minor strike, there were huge solidarity movements from, um, you know, from communities that you may not expect them, a lot of the time based in London, who came up to support uh, support the miners and picket lines. And um, a huge amount of that was, was black solidarity. And the reason why this happened was not just the class thing, although the class thing I do think played a big role in it. It was fundamental. But it was also around this idea of uh, police brutality. Because if you are black um, or you are Asian and you are growing up in Brixton, you know what it's like to have your head kicked in on a regular basis by the police, especially in the 80s. And and also uh, lesbians gay men support the miners yes. as well i mean one of one of their reasons they had affinity with the with, with the experience of the miners is because the whole you know gay scene at that time was, mm-hmm. was brutally oppressed by, by the police there's know. a there's a really great line actually in pride um where uh, the the main leader guy in pride turns around to he's trying to convince uh some of the other guys in the gay bookshop to to join his crusade and and show solidarity with the miners and they're not really into the idea and he turns around and goes have you ever questioned why the gay clubs are so like quiet at the moment and the police aren't kicking our heads in it's because they're all over at the coal fields kicking miners heads Mm. in instead so like yeah if uh if if i may be allowed a second and and final indulgence just as we sort of bring bring this part of the discussion to a to a conclusion i'm I'm gonna give you a time out (laughs) Um, well, it's, you'll it's, be off the show. For it's, it's it's just that there's as as for so many things in 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 terms of labour movement strategy and perspective, um, Farrell Dobbs does some things up really nicely, and there's there's a line from the book um, or, or or a passage from the book that I thought might be a kind of good sort of full stop to to, to this part of our discussion. I mean, it's a little bit sort of kind of nakedly didactic, but um, I think it does the business. So Dobbs is talking about the role of the police in the Minneapolis strikes, and he he says the following, "Um, Under capitalism, the main police function is to break strikes and to repress other forms of protest against the policies of the ruling class. Any civic usefulness other forms of police activity may have, like controlling traffic and summoning ambulances, is strictly incidental to the primary 
repressive function. Although, as as we were just talking about, and as as Ellie talked about, if if you know if you're a black kid growing up on an, on an estate, your experience of kind of day to day primary civic function of policing is also going to be um, kind of repressive as well. And Dobbs goes on, personal inclinations of individual cops do not alter this basic role of the police, so that's important, it's not a kind of bad apples thing. Um, All must comply with ruling class dictates. As a result, police repression becomes one of the most naked forms through which capitalism subordinates human rights to the demands of private property. If the cops sometimes falter in their antisocial tasks, it is simply because they, like the guns they use, are subject to rust when not engaged in the deadly function for which they are primarily trained. So that about brings us to the end of the main bulk of the episode. Um, But we're recording this the day after the 12th of May TUC New Deal for Workers demo. Um, And a few of us were actually on that demo. And we had some good experiences and some bad experiences. But one thing that we thought we would do this month is we'd introduce a new feature called Four Ways to Make the Next TUC Demo Better. So, in at number four, we have Daniel Randall with... (laughs) Yeah, so the first point we wanted to talk about was raising demands more explicitly. So this demo was organised under the slogan A New Deal for Working People, which we think, frankly, is a little bit vague. Now, at the rally, at the end of the demo, um, the the demands that the demo were raising, which were like £10 an hour minimum wage, repeal the uh, Trade Union Act, end to zero hours contracts, all, all really good demands. They were kind of written up on banners at the sides of the stage, but they weren't really as prominent as we feel they perhaps could have been like on the demo itself um, in terms of um, placards. There were some TUC placards with uh, demands on, but like I felt maybe there could have been more of that, and there could have been more uh, just in terms of the general presentation of the demo to, to make it explicit that this wasn't just the token march made to be, this was part of an ongoing social and political campaign to win um, a, a particular set of, of political demands. So uh, our, our first way to improve the next DC demo is to make the demands sharper, make the demands more radical and make the demands more prominent. Three? Yeah, it was a really uh, welcome uh shift i think at the rally this time that there were a couple of uh, workers from workplaces in dispute um mcdonald's and and cgi fridays and i think it's important it's good to see the labor movement out on the street it's good to see our leaders like like uh, giving it a bit of welly and like telling us what they think about stuff but i think it's important that the rallies aren't just like a parade of general secretaries and labor mps and and sort of uh, officials of the movement but include uh, rank and file activists who are like mm. at, the, at the cutting edge the fighting edge of the movement as well so that's a step in the right direction but I, I'd, I'd want to see next time uh, go further have more workers on the platform two um, yeah we, I think it would be great if there were more songs and slogans and political chants um, on the march um, like I feel like parts of the demonstration felt just kind of unnecessarily quiet and subdued. Now, partially that's because it was pissing it down with rain and that always makes the atmosphere in the demo a little bit miserable. But, you know, singing can, can lift your spirit. So even in that context, um, it, would be, it would have been good to see more of that. We've, we've sort of got a culture now where people were like, they blow vuvuzelas or they're just banging drums. And bluntly, like, what, what is the point of a wall of, of just having a wall of noise that, that drowns out people's ability to like articulate the reason that they're on the demo. You know, there's a really fantastic, rich tradition of labor movement songs, things like Solidarity Forever, you know, b- being the obvious ones. So 
we think it would be great if the next time uh, the TEC organises the demo, it printed up a little red songbook with some some chants about the you know actual demands, some 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 political chants, not just kind of generic low level stuff of you know that they say cut back, we say fight back or whatever, but chants that articulate the demands and then um, some some trade union and labour movement songs that would raise the political level of the demo, it would raise the cultural level of the demo. Um, it's a good kind of historical educational thing to tell people about the history of those songs. I think it would just make for a better atmosphere. And this week's number one. Yeah, so I think uh, one of the most important things from these big demos, and there's, there's been a few of them over the last few years, like every 18 months or so, um, of varying sizes, you know, but even a small TUC demo is significant and has some tens of thousands of people on it. The most important thing, I think, is make sure everyone goes away from that demo with something to do, right? So, so Something that is like the next step in the campaign. So whether that's like giving out some literature about uh, organising your workplace, you know, uh, or, or whether it's just having some pre-arranged uh, dates for like when there's going to be a local demo or a regional demo, like it's all it's well and good having a, a good day out in central london and it's good as i say to see the labor movement on the streets and to see all our banners and flags and stuff like that but if you really want a new deal for working people that's going to be a sustained political campaign right and it can't just be a case of oh you get back on the coach you drop back up and away job done more of a strategy more of a long-term kind of like what's the next step in this thing Okay, uh, thank you so much for listening to uh, this month's episode. And as much as I hope that Daniel didn't raise your expectations too high, <laughs> like um, I think that's a really worthwhile conversation to have. And it's, it's certainly a kind of like passion project of mine, uh, talking about the police at great length to anybody who will listen. But um, we, um, we have, as you know, been talking about the Orgrave Truth and Justice campaign. And Ed is just going to come in with, uh, with a few things that, that they're up to at the moment. Thanks, Ellie. It's a couple of events that are coming up in June that the campaign is organising. Uh, they have a now annual uh, rally uh, at Orgrave Lane uh, on the site of the Mass Picket. That's on Saturday, the 16th of June this year. Um, and that's a big uh, sort of um, uh, rally commemorating the mass picket. There'll be brass bands there. There'll be speakers there. There'll be, you know, there'll be food there. So if you can get along down there, that'll, that'll be a great day. A few days later on the 21st, as part of the Festival of Debate in Sheffield, uh, there's going to be a meeting hosted by the Orgreave campaign uh, in the Quaker meeting house in Sheffield and that's about why the strike is still relevant and important today and I think whatever our views on uh, on policing whatever our views on the role of the cops it would be a huge democratic step forward if that campaign were to win its demand for a public inquiry mm. into what mm. happened on that day mm-hmm. and and, uh, um, and to, in so doing uh, provoke a larger conversation about how the police are used in industrial disputes so please 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 check out the orgreave campaign online and and do get your union to support what they're doing get a speaker from the campaign down to your branch and uh, keep an eye out for their events and for their lobbies and for their rallies because it's a, it's a really great campaign it's really important and just in final conclusion of this month's episode because i think we're, we're probably not gonna uh, do another show before the event I'm about to mention takes place, but um, Labor Days um, is going to be hosting a panel at Ideas for Freedom, which is a weekend uh, festival of socialist discussion, debate, workshops, film showings, etc., hosted by Workers' Liberty across the weekend of the 23rd and 24th of June. The panel is entitled 
um, the new new unionism question mark. Um, we're going to be hosting speakers from the Picture House Cinema Workers Strike and uh, hopefully other similar disputes, talking about whether those campaigns of of young, precarious, often migrant workers um, have a similar potential to the new unionism movement at the end of the 19th century in terms of um, renewing and uh, reinvigorating the mass labour movement. Also at that event, our very own Ellie Clark is going to be um, uh, leading a discussion on the question of, of what the Labour movement and the Labour Party should say on, on crime and policing, picking up the threads of, of, uh, of the discussions that we've, we, we, we've, we've had today. So if you're interested in um, either of those topics, um, we hope to see some of you at that event. Uh, thanks for listening and uh, we'll speak to you next time. Labour Days was presented by Daniel Randall, Ed Mustill and Ellie Clark and produced by Lou McNulty with additional research provided by Holly Smith. The production assistant is E.B. Horbath. Find Labour Days on Facebook and at Labour underscore Days on Twitter. Download us on iTunes and the podcast platform of your choice and do leave us a review. This is why I don't do the credits because yeah, it on, takes me on. fucking ass.